Welcome to the Uncovered Legacy Podcast, where storytelling is not just left at the kitchen table. Many of us walk through life leaving a silent legacy, but I am here to change that by keeping those stories alive. Each tale will allow us to learn, discover, listen, and remember. I am your host, Curtis Burke. Thank you for listening. He received his doctorate in organization leadership and a master's in social entrepreneurship and change at the Pepperdine University Graduate School of Education and Psychology. He also earned a bachelor's of arts degree in political science and critical approaches to leadership from the University of Southern California. Dr. Ni Cordelai Corte is a journalist, educator, and a trusted community leader who has been featured over the years on programs ranging from The Oprah Winfrey Show to MSNBC's Sunday's Show with Jonathan Capehart. In his most exciting chapter yet, Dr. Corte serves as a moderator of A More Perfect Union, a radio show and chief national political analyst for the new KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Corte, welcome to Uncovered Legacy. Well, thank you for inviting me. And let me just say that I have been um, anxious to uh, join your your program here because uh, you talk a lot about legacy. And uh, uh, me and one of my besties, your brother-in-law, Jazz, uh, have talked a lot about that over the years. And so I'm glad we get to take the conversation to the masses. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Um, Thank you for coming on, too, and having that plug into the Summers family. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Thanks for giving us a set of twins to to be excited about. (laughs) That's a whole nother legacy that we're working on too. That, that uncovering their legacy and my own in, in the process. So <laughs> I appreciate that. That's right. So Benicia, did you grow up in Benicia as well? I did not. I grew up. I grew up in the Concord Walnut Creek area, specifically in Concord. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, but I have I have logged my frequent driver miles over the Benicia Bridge uh, many a times as. Uh, Throughout high school, I spent a lot of time at uh, the Summers house, uh, hanging out and uh, trying to stay out of trouble. And you went to a private school, right? As a as a youth. Yeah, yeah. I went to to De La Salle High School. Went to a Catholic school uh, in the East Bay, and um, uh, that's where I met your brother-in-law, Jazz, and that's where we. Uh, Got into some good trouble. Right. <laughs> I know that you guys, um, you guys got arrested one time, right? He told me about that story. Did you get arrested one time? <laughs> Wasn't your fault, but it was, <laughs> it's part of the work that you do now, I'm assuming. So the political work for justice for people, right? <laughs> Curtis, you just jump right in. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, you know, I'm gonna cover the, the youth. <laughs> Hey, nice to meet you. Where did you grow up? So when you got <laughs> Let's get to it. So I know it's like mistaken uh, we, identity, right? We did. Yes, we we uh, did not get arrested, but we did um, find ourselves uh, at the mercy of the San Francisco Police Department. Okay, uh, it was my 18th birthday, and Jazz 
in, in our friend group was the only one that was already 18 because his, his birthday is in January. And so Jazz and I went to the city. We went to San Francisco uh, to continue the celebration. And after we had parked the car and we're walking towards Broadway, uh, there's an SFPD car that comes racing down the street and an officer uh, jumps out, gun drawn, saying, put your hands up. And so I'm looking at Jazz like, oh, I think we have walked into one of those situations already in progress. And he said, no, fool, they are pointing the gun at us. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it was um, clear that they thought that we were uh, folks that we weren't. Uh, and so they had us handcuffed, uh, sitting on the curb. I was a bit more mouthy, quite frankly, than Jazz was, um, asking for badge numbers, you know, having a sense of what my rights were, what our rights were. Uh, and there's not a day that goes by where we see an exam another example of an officer-involved shooting uh, or overuse of force that went the wrong way uh, and may have led to loss of life. There's not a situation that goes on it hits the headlines where Jazz and I don't have some kind of phone conversation or text exchange about it, recognizing that that incident that we were a part of on my 18th birthday could have gone from bad to worse in five seconds. Uh, and it drives me crazy uh, to know that 20 years later, uh, those situations are still a regular occurrence in too many communities across the country. Uh, and uh, we have an administration in office willing to do something about it, but we have members of Congress that remain intransigent uh, when it comes to police reform. And so, uh, you know, doing something about it uh, has motivated me from the moment I had that experience. And, um, you know, I hope at some point in our lifetime we're able to be a part of a coalition that wins the kind of reforms that ensures that that doesn't happen to another 18-year-old on their 18th birthday. Do you think that that is part of the talk that a lot of parents have to have with their, with their especially Black American sons or men of color? I think it is, and it, and it breaks my heart that, uh, that parents have to continue to have those kinds of conversations in a valiant effort to keep their kids safe. Uh, it is uh, an example of the fundamental injustice uh, that is uh, cross generation after generation. Uh, and, you know, I just hope by the time your little ones are 18 years old, uh, that, that we have uh, figured out a way uh, to keep our communities safe, but also hold the people accountable that take that oath to protect and to serve. You know, you know, this isn't about railing against all police officers. Um, uh, this is not about, uh, uh, in my view, you know, getting rid of law enforcement. Um, but this is about saying that nobody's above the law, and it's, it's it's about creating unity against lawlessness. Whether it is a police officer with a badge or a violent protester with a picket sign, uh, I think it's time for us to unite against lawlessness in all of its forms. And I just thank goodness that that um, spring night 
in, in April 2000, I, I, I think, or 2002, April 2002, I thank goodness that that situation didn't go from, from bad uh, to worse, but it should have never happened in the first place. Right, the way that and, it happened. And, 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 and Curtis, I've got to also say that the hurt, the humiliation of a situation like that never leaves you. Mm-hmm. It gives you a taste of what a lot of our ancestors probably went through for the humility that they have to suffer, even in front of their own families. Just just a taste. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the places that I visited, um, one of the last places I visited right before the beginning of the pandemic uh, was uh, the National Museum for Peace and Justice, also known as the um, uh, Lynching Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, this was uh, a museum that was uh, uh, created by Brian Stevenson and the folks over at the Equal Justice Initiative uh, in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, and I remember spending an afternoon uh, at that museum just by myself and, you know, walking through and really taking stock of the thousands of names of black folks, um, black men and women, but a whole lot of black men. Uh, who had been lynched, uh, you know, uh, over the course of a large swath of our history here in the United States. And these are just the documented ones. And, you know, you know, I read as many stories as I could that afternoon of the circumstances around the lynching of, of a number of different people. And what one of my biggest takeaways was a lot of those situations um, have not changed. You know, uh, you, you know, folks that are, were were uh, unjustly and um, inaccurately accused of wrongdoing, right? Uh, you know, racial bias, both implicit and explicit, right? You know, it's there, it's documented, and so, you know, uh, you know, the 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 white supremacy that we have to contend with today is nothing new. It's nothing new and confronting it is not for the faint of heart. I really want to go to that museum one day. I've heard a lot about it and I've seen videos of it and they even have it broken down to counties and they have the names of people and it's it's just really interesting. It caught my eye when I saw um my my mother's side is from Lawrence County. Well, uh, Lawrence County which is in South Carolina and they had a couple several names in that particular county. And it just makes you feel like this could be someone who's related to you. You, mm-hmm. you just never know. Is, is that what made you go into the field that you're in now? Um, there are a number of things that went into to my commitment uh, to living a life and building a career that centers uh, the fight for social and economic justice. Um, you know, I remember at the age of seven, and talking about the Bay Area, uh, when I was seven years old, uh, Nelson Mandela was freed from being in prison uh, in South Africa for 27 years. And one of the things he did was he went on this world tour. And one of the tour stops was the Oakland Coliseum in the Bay Area. And at, I remember being seven years old, early 90s, and uh, my parents took me and my brothers uh, to hear Nelson Mandela speak. 
I felt like every neighbor, every family member, an extended family member we knew was at the Oakland Coliseum that day. It was uh, a day I will never forget. It is etched into my my heart and mind. And at seven years old, without knowing a whole lot about Nelson Mandela at the time, what I sensed, what I felt as a seven-year-old kid uh, was that I was looking at a hero. I was looking at someone who was a powerful demonstration of what's possible when you turn pain into purpose and when you turn purpose into power. I remember just the regard that folks had for Nelson Mandela at the time. And looking around the Oakland Coliseum, you know, part of the reason why it's etched in my memory is because that is my sort of gold standard in terms of what community looks like, what it can feel like, right? You know, you saw Black people, Latino people, Asian people, gay people, uh, disabled people, uh, veterans, um, um, men, women, you know, you saw, you know, uh, everyone that makes up sort of that rich tapestry of the diversity that I knew growing up in the Bay Area. And I saw somebody who had the capacity to bring people together and to, and to get us to look at uh, our, our common, uh, the, look our, our, our the, the things that, that bring us together, the things that we, that we share in common, as opposed to focusing so much on our differences. And, and I have tried in my life and career and will continue to model that, a politic that brings people together, that helps people to uh, look at the things that we have in common, our shared humanity, our shared interests. Um, you know, that is how I choose to, to to use my energy, uh, my talents, um, and uh, uh, that's how I choose to, to live my life. Now, speaking of Nelson Mandela in the homeland, so your father is originally from Africa, correct? The continent of Africa. That's right. My dad was born and raised in Ghana. In Ghana. He was okay. Born and raised in Ghana. Um, he grew up, uh, when he was born, it was under British rule. Um, and by the time he was about seven years old, uh, Ghana had experienced uh, their independence. Um, you know, Kwame Nkrumah and a number of other leaders that were part of the Pan-African movement, um, you know, had, had successfully uh, led the independence uh, of Ghana from British rule. And so, uh, you know, that was one perspective. That was that the Pan-African perspective was omnipresent in my house growing up. Uh, my mom is from Florida. She's Black American. She grew up near the height of the civil rights movement. Uh, she, in fact, she was integrated into a uh, an all-white school uh, her sophomore year in high school. Um, she and my dad met at a historically Black college in Texas. And of course, many years later, had me in the Bay Area. Now, as far as your name, where, where does your name originate from? Oh, my name. <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> um, so my name is from Ghana. Uh, I, I'm the only one of my brothers that does not have a Christian name as my first name. And so I have four older brothers, David, James, John, and Joseph. Uh, and uh, I'm Ikordali. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can tell you the intention behind my name is that I might be caregiver of the family. 
uh, you know, Prince translates to me or or King in the Ga language. Uh, my father's a part of the Ga tribe, um, you know, and uh, you know that is that is that is the story around my name. I understand that there was a relative uh, that was also Quartalai, uh, 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 pronounced Quatalai, uh, in the language K W A sound. Uh, and he was a boxer. Uh, and so, you know, there's power in the name, you know, to the fact that my parents were inspired to name me after a distant relative who was a boxer uh, and that I don't uh, shrink from getting in the good trouble and uh, getting into, you know, the good fight, if you will. Uh, that is a, an example of the power of a name to sort of transcend uh, not just people and generations, but continents. Now, Ni Cordelai Cortate, before the doctor was added on, um, what did people call you growing up? Before before I earned my doctorate, <laughs> um, you know, I had a, a number of nicknames growing up, um, you know, and I appreciate that as an adult, uh, uh, you know, the wise folks don't take liberties with my name, but, you know, my mom called affectionately calls me court as does, you know, a number of my aunties and, and some of my cousins, um, you know, some of my uh, closest friends from high school and college will call me Q um, and they have permission to do so. Um, uh, you know, and there are other nicknames that I have, uh, where people have a conditional use permit <laughs> to, to use that uh, in uh, with with me, but um, you know, I've got to say, when you have an uncommon name, you really got to make peace with it. You know, it's 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 not easy growing up uh, and having an uncommon name. Um, I think we just saw Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown Jackson sort of speak to this during, I think it was during her opening statement where she talked about the meaning of her name and, and the fact that her, her parents who had more common names decided to give her an uncommon name uh, that was Afrocentric uh, uh, and, and hoped to inspire a sense of pride and connection to heritage. Um, you know, I think my parents had a very similar uh, intent. And so what a beautiful thing to see the first black woman appointed and confirmed as a Supreme Court justice who happens to have an uncommon name, just like me, uh, and also happens to have a, a consciousness and commitment uh, to uh, where that name is derived, um, you know, and to our people across the diaspora. I think it's a beautiful thing. And now that you have achieved being a doctor, Tell me the process of getting your doctorate. Lots of reading, <laughs> lots of hard work. You know, and, and let, me, let me just say, I never intended to study to get my doctorate. Um, it is just, you know, putting one foot in front of the other and, and things just sort of led there. Um, I only applied to one university to work on my master's. Uh, and had I not gotten in, I probably, you know, would have, you know, gone on to do something else. Um, that one university was Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Education and Psychology. 
where I studied social entrepreneurship and change. Um, is, you know, it's all about sustainability. Uh, it's all about, um, you know, the environment and social justice and governance and, and um, all of those buzz terms that have become even more widely known and more popular uh, today, given the challenges that we see in the world. Um, my first day of class, one of the very few Black professors I ever had, Dr. Steve Kernan, uh, I was packing up my book bag, and he said to me, have you ever thought about working on your doctorate? Whoa, huh? Ooh, me? Let me finish right. this first, right? Let me finish this first. <laughs> if you knew what it took for me to be here as a full-time student and a full-time uh, professional, right? You would ease up off of that. Uh, and uh, I really thank Dr. Kiernan for planting that seed and nurturing that seed over the course of my uh, graduate studies. Uh, I took a little breather after my master's and then went back uh, you know, to begin work on my doctorate. And in doing the process of that, you probably found your lane, I'm assuming. Um, I'm sure it came natural for you, too, when you were getting your doctorate. I mean, I know it was hard, but it, do you think it, it excelled you to be who you are today? I think whenever anyone has a chance to hone their craft, they should. And for me, honing my craft meant working full time, uh, being connected to community, and you know, studying hard in school. Um, you know, you know, reading so much um, uh, about how organizations tick and how uh, to invest in human capital, how to do that well. You know, uh, learning about resistance and all the different ways in which that that shows up in organizations. Um, you know, learning about organizational behavior, organizational development, um, learning about different models of leadership, you know, servant leadership, transformational leadership, building coalitions, right? Uh, you know, and, and learning about learning, you know, the difference between how uh, adults learn versus, you know, how young people uh, learn. Um, uh, and so taking the time to hone my craft uh, over the years has really made a difference and it's allowed me to be able to move through uh, the world uh, and to be able to weigh in on issues, to be able to unpack issues with, uh, you know, an, expert, an expertise as both a practitioner uh, and as a scholar. Did you ever see yourself on MSNBC? Did you ever see the world that, that you're living now and the impact that you have on the community? Um, did I ever see it? I, I don't, I don't I think I necessarily saw it in this particular way, uh, but um, I always felt that I was being summoned and, and groomed um, to do really uh, important work uh, that just might uh, place me on a uh, a bigger stage than I can ever imagine. Uh, and um, that's the way that I look at it. Um, it's, it's great to you know, pop up uh, on TV and on various programs, um, but it's even better to be able to pop up and to be able to have something to say, something of consequence, 
to be able to speak truth to power. I mean, this is really why I made the decision to return to my first love of journalism. That's really what brought me to Los Angeles. I was accepted into the Annenberg School of Journalism at the University of Southern California. Uh, fight on to all the Trojans that are, uh, <laughs> are, are listening to this or watching this. Uh, and uh, you know, while I was there, I had a chance to you know, intern at Good Morning America and, and uh, the local Fox affiliate in the Bay Area, KTBU, and even Larry King Live at CNN. Um, and I learned so much uh, when I was uh, you know, at USC and studying journalism. Uh, and so many of those, those things I learned, so many of the reasons why I wanted to be a journalist um, really came rushing back to me uh, during the course of the pandemic, as I sort of took stock of the state of the world, the state of our world, you know, as I took inventory and, you know, really sat and asked myself, you know, um, am I doing everything I can do? Is there more that I can do to make a difference in this world, in this era of misinformation and disinformation, uh, in this era where white supremacy and hate crimes are on the rise, in this era of book bans and laws. Could we ever believe that we'd be passing laws in this country uh, that prevent people from even saying gay uh, in classrooms? You know, uh, some of the anti-LGBTQ legislation that's been sweeping the country, particularly anti-trans legislation. Um, you know, uh, the anti-CRT, or as I like to think of it, anti-Black history legislation uh, that's sweeping the country, you know. Uh, and so, uh, you, you can't you can't have a level of consciousness about what's happening in the world. At least I couldn't. But you know, I I think I have the capacity uh, to do even more uh, to impact the communities that I am a part of, the communities that I'm rooted in, the communities that have poured so much into me. Uh, I think it's important uh, that uh, those of us that are able. Uh, you know, um, get into the arena, you know, and, and fight for the people and the communities and the ideas that, that we care about. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm really enjoying my uh, best chapter yet. That's the way I think about it uh, as a journalist and an educator. I saw you take a picture with Karen Bass. I know that she's running for mayor. How did that come about? Karen Bass uh, is, uh, uh, she's a standout leader. She's, she's uh, dare I say, a transformational leader. And she's a transformational leader uh, because she believes that the people that are most impacted by the issues uh, should have you know, the, the, the seat at the table, um, uh, should be inextricably a part of any uh, proposed solution. Um, and that has been a through line as long as I've known her. I met Karen Bass for the first time right after I graduated uh, from USC. This was in uh, 2006. Uh, and as over the years, we've had a chance to get to know each other and work with each other on a number of, of, of projects and initiatives. Um, you know, Karen Bass was uh, the officiant uh, at my wedding. Uh, oh, wow. We, okay. <laughs> Uh, you know, we serve on uh, a board together, the National Foster Youth Institute uh, Board. Um, in fact, I credit Karen Bass for really uh, getting me engaged on child welfare issues. Um, and I remember some of the conversations we've had over the years, and it became clear to me that 
you know, anyone who cares deeply about uh, justice in our education system, justice in our healthcare system, uh, about our, our, our justice system altogether, uh, that you've got to recognize that foster youth uh, are disproportionately impacted by those systems. Uh, and black and brown and LGBTQ foster youth uh, make up a, a large swath of the young people that are in foster care, not just in California, but across the country. And so I really credit Karen Bass for getting me engaged on child welfare issues. Um, and for all those reasons and more, I think that she would make a terrific mayor of Los Angeles. I think she's somebody who really wants to just be a great mayor. You know, there's a lot of people that, that, that run for things as a stepping stone to other things, you know, and at this stage in her career, you know, Karen Bass, who was on the short list to become, uh, to get picked as vice president uh, to Joe Biden, um, you know, there are a lot of things she could be doing. And the fact that at this stage in her career, she's willing to take on really one of the messiest jobs at one of the most challenging times, which is becoming mayor of the second largest city of the country. Yeah. Speaking of President Joe Biden, you worked on his campaign also. I did. I did. I did. I, I uh, was invited to serve the campaign as a senior policy advisor Uh to help uh, the campaign sort of think through you know, what the president's work could look like on some issues that were uh, important to, to him and to a number of folks that are part of the communities that I'm a part of. And I uh, am really grateful that I had a chance to uh, support his campaign in community with so many other leaders uh, across the country. Did you meet him? I have met uh, the president okay. and uh, he is a uh, he's a standout guy. And, uh, um, you know, what a difference uh, a presidency makes. Uh, I never met a former president. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't feel sad about that. Um, you know, but you know, from everything I've, I've, you know, read and seen, um, you know, Joe Biden, uh, you know, really uh, brings us some normalcy. Um, and quite frankly, in my opinion, some decency. Uh, back into the Oval Office. So in, in your position again with Joe Biden, um, what was the position called again, you said? So I served as a senior policy advisor okay. uh, to the campaign uh, and had a chance to really work uh, with the folks that were developing um, a series of policy recommendations uh, for uh, the, the campaign. And so um, a lot of very behind the scenes um, I probably already said too much, uh, but uh, it was a pleasure to serve in that way. So now your newest endeavor, a more perfect union. Congratulations, yeah. by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I am I'm really excited. Like I said earlier, Curtis, uh, this is my most exciting chapter yet. Uh, I am so grateful to be returning to my first love of journalism. And as if that wasn't enough, I get to do it uh, in collaboration with really an icon in the industry. Tavis Smiley uh, has been incredibly uh, gracious and generous uh, in um, helping to procure this opportunity, even offering this opportunity. Uh, who knew that doing a couple interviews, you know, with Tavis Smiley on his show, um, you know, 
might lead to the opportunity to, to moderate a two-hour national public affairs show uh, that is intent on uh, providing, um, you know, news and informed opinion and analysis beyond the headlines. I'm looking forward to spending every Sunday, starting this Sunday, uh, May 22nd, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, you know, and really just, you know, bringing together, uh, you know, folks, not just in D.C., but inside and outside of the Beltway, bringing folks together um, to make sense out of what is happening in our country and, you know, uh, how we might be able to move forward. I think this is great. And Tavis uh, um, Smiley, he is well respected in the community. So how do you how do you feel um, about the new venture? Will he be a guest as well? Um, Tavis will be a guest uh, anytime we need him. Um, but even better than being a guest, Tavis is the executive producer of my show. And okay. so we work with him uh, and uh, closely uh, uh, all the time. And so I'm really excited uh, about that. It's been a joy to work with him. Uh, in fact, I was I was in his office. The last time I was in L.A., I was in Tavis's office, and we were he was looking over uh, you know some script that I had uh, pulled together. Uh, and you know, I looked over to my left, and you know, Tavis has a uh, number of awards uh, that are on this table adjacent to his desk. That's a lot of NAACP <laughs> image awards right there. And he said, "Yeah, the other half are at my mom's house." Right. The other half. What? You know, and so, you know, somebody who has almost 30 NAACP image awards, um, to me, that that that's the company that you want to be in. That, you know, those are the folks that you really want to lean into and learn from. And like I said earlier, I think it's important, whatever you're doing, you got to hone your craft. Either, you know, whatever whatever you, you choose to do, attempt to be the best at it. Attempt to put your own stamp on it. Attempt to, to bring your lived experience to it uh, and, and therefore make it something that folks who experience it can never forget. And so, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm jazzed, in case you haven't noticed, I'm jazzed <laughs> about uh, working with, with Tavis Smiley and, and being a part of the KBLA Talk 1580 family. Um, you know, I don't. Some of your listeners might know this, but um, Tavis actually purchased the station a little over a year ago. It's a big deal. You know, uh, this is the only black-owned, um, you know, progressive talk station west of the Mississippi. And at a time where we see, you know, challenges around misinformation and disinformation, you know, and the growing threat of of, of white supremacy and um, and so many other challenges to our democracy, it's important that people are able to get uh, solid information from trusted sources uh, to be able to make decisions uh, that are important to their lives uh, and important to their communities at the ballot box and beyond. And so I'm looking forward to being a part of that in this way. I'm looking forward to having Tavis Smiley uh, a part of that in this way. And you know, this is our down payment on what we all need to be doing to build a more perfect union. Well, it sounds like you guys are going to, going to get into some good trouble. And we need more people like that because you made a good point. A lot of us don't know who to trust. 
and Tavis is well respected in the community. You have definitely created your own legacy in that. And you need to see representation that looks like you and us and for people to understand what you're going through. So a lot of times I think it could be hard when you don't see representation of people of color and you just feel like they don't get it. They don't get it. But when you see someone like you, um, yourself, people can take a, a sigh and a, a breath of fresh air or, or an exhale and, and know that this is, this is a step in the right direction. So we appreciate yeah, that. And, and hopefully uh, folks are able to, to see their own humanity and the guests that we feature and the stories that we, we talk about. Uh, just giving you a little bit of a glimpse in terms of that first episode, in some way, shape, or form, I intend to acknowledge the lives of uh, the people uh, who were lost, who were massacred, quite frankly, uh, in Buffalo uh, at the only uh, grocery store that they had in that community. And so can you imagine, I mean, I mean, I just get teary thinking about it. Can you imagine know what it's like living in buffalo right now and you're just you know minding your business living your your life and you know just just going to pick up a birthday cake for your three-year-old you know or just 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 stopping by to pick up a little something to eat after you know you just left uh you know from church uh, caregiving you know the person that you that you love and care about you know or, you know, let me just pop into the grocery store to grab something, right? Um, you know, nobody deserves to be massacred, to be hunted and massacred, period. Uh, and uh, what happened in Buffalo, what happened in Orange County, what happened uh, in, in too many communities across the country is deeply disturbing. Uh, and we can't turn away from it. Um, but uh, while we figure out all the ways in which we can address it, I think the first thing we need to do is acknowledge and lift up the humanity of the lives that were lost. And so in some way, shape or form on our first show, I'm looking forward to, to doing exactly that. And uh, can you name the platforms that it will be on? I know you named one earlier, though. Sure. We want to encourage people to download the KBLA Talk 1580 app. Okay. Download the app and you can listen to the show live from the app. Uh, you can listen to it on demand at your leisure, but download the app. Uh, you can also listen to uh, uh, podcast episodes of A More Perfect Union on Spotify, you know, Google Play. You can go to the, 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 you know, the Apple podcast uh, store. I mean, it's, it's out there. It's out there. But the easiest way is for people to download the KBLA Talk 1580 app. And the launch date is for... Sunday, May 22nd, 2022. That will be our, our premiere episode. I'm super excited about it. Uh, I'll tell you, Curtis, because you're part of the family. <laughs> Nobody else really knows this, but uh, Maya Wiley, who is the CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Oh, wow. We have her on as a guest. Okay. Excited about that. Uh, Malcolm Kenyatta, uh, the Pennsylvania State Representative, uh, and recent... Uh, Democratic uh, candidate for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. Yep, we're going to have him on the show on on Sunday. We're looking forward to having him. Uh, we're also looking forward to having 
Minneapolis City Council President Andrea Jenkins. I believe she's the first black trans woman elected to uh, public office in the United States of America. Uh, George Floyd uh, was murdered uh, in her district. She actually lives around the corner from where uh, he was murdered. Uh, as we're on nearing the, the, the eve of uh, the anniversary of, of the death of George Floyd, uh, we're going to have uh, her on to reflect on that and, and to uh, dial us in as to what's happening uh, in Minneapolis today and how, as city council president, how she's balancing the call for police reform, uh, you know, with the call for uh, immediate response to public safety concerns that are afoot today. And so uh, that's just a taste. That's, just that's a not taste. everybody. That's just a taste <laughs> of who we're going to have on our first show and the caliber of folks uh, that we intend to have on every show, every Sunday from 10 a.m. to 12 noon Pacific. You want to be, you want to be there. You want to stream this. A more well, perfect we, union. we are excited to listen to a more perfect union and congratulations with, with that. And as you uncover all these legacies for yourself and other people, I wanted to ask you one more question is, um, your parents, how proud of they are you today? Oh, wow. Well, my, my mom has called me several times to remind me how, how proud she is of me. My father's deceased and has been since 2006. But, um, you know, mom does not miss a moment uh, to uh, remind me how proud uh, my father would be uh, of uh, who I am, who I'm becoming and the work that I am uh, I'm leading. And, you know, I, I, I can't thank them enough. I mean, you know, the, th- the opportunities that my parents exposed me to growing up as a kid, the lessons that I learned from, you know, the good decisions that they made and maybe the not so good decisions that they made, um, you know, have all ma- helped to make me the, the person I am. And so, and, and I'll say this, Mrs. White, who's probably going to listen to this interview, Mrs. White, uh, is one of my play aunts. Uh, she's one of my mom's best friends, known her my entire life. Uh, and when I was a kid, I was very inquisitive with a kid. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and growing up, Mrs. White used to call me Little Tabitha. And Mrs. White sort of had this sneaking su- suspicion that that you know maybe one day I might be you know a journalist or you know political figure in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and so. After that first interview I did with Tavis on his show, I remember sharing that uh, with him after the show, and uh, he was absolutely tickled by it. But I, I bring that up just to say that, you know, when they say it takes a village to raise a child, well, you know, I'm a product of that village. And there are a lot of folks over the years who've thrown into me, poured into me, who've seen the potential in me and have encouraged uh, me. And I just want to be a reflection of that to the folks that I encounter. I'm on air and off. And so uh, you'll get a taste of what that looked like on air, May 22nd, from 10 a.m. to 12 noon Pacific, More Perfect Union on KBLA Talk 1580. Thank you for coming on Uncovered Legacy today and sharing so much knowledge with us today. Thank you, sir. I, I appreciate the invitation and appreciate what you're doing here. I mean, you're documenting our becoming stories. And, uh, you know, with a set of twins and, you know, uh, obligations out the wazoo, 
Uh, I'm sure your commitment to this is not for the faint of heart. And so thank you for being committed and and thank you for capturing these gems uh, in the digital age in this way. Thank you, doctor. I appreciate that. David, James, John, Joseph, and Nee Cordelai Corte, the caregiver of the family. How do parents decide what name to give a child? Could it be the month one is born, the gender, the firstborn, the youngest, or the middle child? Whatever the reason, Nee Cordelai Corte is taking care of more than just his family. He has taken it globally to make sure we were all taken care of. A voice for the voiceless, a safe haven for those who have not been heard or seen. His parents got it right. And now each community, city, and state can feel taken care of. Why Dr. Nee Cordelai Corte continues to fight the good fight, whether that be in Congress or in our own backyards. Thank you for listening to Uncovered Legacy.